Hey everybody, welcome back on the macro trading floor. This is Alf speaking, CEO and founder of the Macro Compass. And this is Andreas Steno speaking, the CEO and founder of Steno Research. It's been another crazy week, I'd say, in global central banking, not least when it comes to the market reaction to all of the central bank meetings that we've seen this week. It is as if everyone has just thrown in the towel, Elf. It's a new bull market, Andreas. It's born, it's raised, it speaks, it walks. It's a new bond, mar uh, bond market. I mean, fuck me, I've traded bonds for so long. It's a new bull market, that's what <laughs> I meant. Um, no, but really, the Nasdaq, I think, is up 20% from the lows, which marks, I think, officially a new bull market. It also was so in July last year, in October last year, I think. And uh, now we are again. But this time, we've got to ask ourselves if it's really the time when the stock market has actually uh, put up a new gear. And so what has happened this week? We've had the ECB, the Fed, and the Bank of England. Yeah. Okay, so I'll tell you what I think of the Fed, and then I'll ask you what do you think of the Fed, right? Let's start from there, yeah. chronologically speaking. So I've got Powell, and there were some expectations that he would push back against the easing of financial conditions, which is a lot of jargon for stocks have gone up, and mortgage rates have gone down, and the dollar has gone down. So Powell do something about it, yep. roughly. And he said, eh, yeah, but you guys are looking at some uh, Goldman Sachs financial condition index. We don't agree. Uh, we think financial conditions are pretty tight. Uh, and by the way, we don't target short-term movements. So we are happy with it. It's okay. It's fine. Most importantly, the disinflation has started and um, will hike today, maybe another time, and basically will be data-dependent. And data-dependent in central bank jargon, Andreas, at least from what I know, means markets, please go ahead and price whatever you want. I mean, just make the pricing contingent what you think is the base case scenario, which in this case is inflation is priced to go down to 2% very rapidly. There is no hard pinning from Powell anymore on what the terminal it should be, for how long it should be, and therefore markets are free to price contingent on the assumptions that it's gonna be a soft landing and that inflation will come down. And so they do so, and they squeeze everything they can. And that's basically my summary. But what do you think? I, I took notice of one small change to the wording that I actually think means the world. So instead of talking about the pace of hikes, reflecting a continued hiking cycle, they now talk about the extent of hikes needed based on an assessment of lags of former interest rate hikes from last year uh, and an assessment of the uh, ongoing pain that it, it, that it will end up inflict uh, on uh, the economy, right? Um, so changing the word from pace to extent opens the door rhetorically, semantically for a pause. We have to admit that. Um, what I struggle to convince myself about now is whether you per se need to celebrate a pause from the Federal Reserve. They could pause due to weakening conditions, right? That would not necessarily be a, um, a reason to just celebrate as a consequence of a pause. So if they're data dependent, and if they pause as a consequence of weak data, is that a reason to celebrate? Not per se. What I find interesting is that everyone, probably even including the two of us, had expected him to talk tough, and he did not. I mean, uh, we can agree on that. Um, and 
Therefore, you could also see it in positioning data heading into this FOMC meeting. Uh, we had net shorts and bonds um, at new highs relative to what we've seen uh, over the course of the past months. We had pretty material buying of short positions in ETF space from retail. It was a new all-time record in the SQQQ in January, uh, so the short NASDAQ ETF. Um, so it tells you a little bit about the positioning into this meeting, despite the rally that we've seen in equity markets. And I have to admit that even though I've been net long equities um, in a slightly defensive manner, um, I think it's fair to say that that the average investor was too bearish heading into this year. I know it's easy to say in hindsight, um, but the recession has sort of been postponed as po and postponed as po and postponed, right? Yeah. Um, so it is tricky to to pee against the wind right now. So I lean long equities after this. I have to admit that. So look, Andreas, the um, the thing is, from a risk management perspective, I thought that Powell would try and calm down animal spirits. Um, you know, you've had quite a rally, quite a drawdown in the dollar, quite a rally in credit spreads, but it really didn't sound convincing. If he was trying, then I didn't notice, and people didn't notice either. I think mechanically what happens there is, as I discussed on the Macro Compass a couple of times, it's, you know, you basically remove the tails. You remove uncertainty. You, you tell people, you know, basically we're going to pause. Except massive um, surprises, we are going to pause. And actually, you know what, we don't really want to pin you guys down. So basically you remove one of the headwinds that has been there last year, which was a mechanical fad. You knew the Fed was hiking and wasn't stopping the pace of hiking, as you described before. You barely knew what terminal rate was. That was last year, right? So you, you, were, you were updating your hawkish expectations every month. And this is now over, at least by the way Powell spoke. So you remove uncertainty. You cut one tail. And when you cut one tail, people are trained to say, well, if there is less uncertainty, I can take more risks. So you first have bond vol coming down, the volatility in the bond market comes down, and then people mechanically will buy more credit spreads. And I mean, look at that, Andreas. Five-year investment-grade credit spreads in the U.S. are trading, last time I checked, at 65 basis points. For people not familiar with U.S. investment-grade credit spreads, a QE kind of range, and I'm talking about 0% risk-free rates and ongoing QE, that range is roughly 50 to 60 basis points. So you're now trading at levels barely above what a QE-induced level would look like. That's the type of comfort that people have taken into buying into the end of the Fed hiking cycle. It's been pretty surprising, I have to say, but technicals are at play too, and you've got to respect price action, mate. I mean, it, it is what it is. Yeah, um, but beneath the surface, something interesting is happening in dollar liquidity space. Uh, we know that liquidity has been added in January. We know that liquidity will be added in February until, unless we get a surprise. It will likely be added in March as well. And we can discuss from now on until next year, basically, whether a net liquidity injection is per se positive for equities. But at least on the margin, it seems as if risk-taking thrives when liquidity is added. Um, but it also means that since liquidity is added now, it will take longer for the Fed to reach their target on the balance sheet size. 
Uh, Chris Waller from the FOMC said that the rule of thumb is around 10% of the gross domestic product for the amount of resource available for the financial system. And we are currently roughly 550, maybe even 600 billion by the time of uh, release here from that target. So they will need to remove those dollars from the financial system um, to get dollar liquidity back in sync with fundamentals. And I think you should notice that the Fed is still hawkish when it comes to their balance sheet. Uh, they haven't promised us a pause in balance sheet terms. And I think QT could last until, say, early fall or thereabout, given this rule of thumb of 10% of gross domestic product as the target. Yeah. Uh, and that would ultimately mean that we will meet an inflection point from a liquidity perspective, maybe in early May. And that is probably when you should be become scared. You know, I was reflecting upon these bank reserves and liquidity dynamics. And in 2019, Fed, the Fed uh, did a massive pivot. I mean, in January 19, Powell basically threw in the towel and said, okay, we have been too tight for too long and we have done enough damage and we're going to now ease policy. That was January 2019. That was literally a soft landing. In 2019, um, U.S. job creation was pretty low, but no job losses. U.S. earnings growth was 0% year on year in 2019, yet the S&P delivered a 30% return, 30% in 2019. If I ask you, what did bank reserves do in 2019? Did they go up or down? The answer is they went down and pretty aggressively so, because as you say, the Fed is very orthodox when it comes to their quantitative tightening structure. I mean, it's just what it is. It keeps running. It's like watching paint dry, which is not really the case. There are uh, inflection points, therefore, for the repo market and liquidity, but it's not a one-on-one -on -one relationship. We have discussed it in the past as well, Andreas. I mean, if the Fed pivots, it is such a strong signal for risk-taking in general and for carry trades and for risk premium compression that it might trump for a few quarters, actually, the negative liquidity backdrop. It might be the case. This episode is brought to you by Curve. Curve is a payments card company that empowers customers to control, maintain, and direct total control into their finances. By using Curve and adding your other cards to Curve's wallet, you unlock new value like cash flow management, self-driving money, and the ability to stack rewards. Guys, basically think of Curve like one unique credit card that helps you maximize your rewards. Rather than add another card to your wallet, Curve instead combines all your cards into one. It effectively helps you maximize your rewards. You also earn a 1% cashback on everything that you buy between now and the next six months. It is also useful to get on top of your cash flows by consolidating multiple credit cards into one single place. You are eligible to receive $20 in Curve Cash to your Curve account within 14 days of you downloading the Curve app through the referral link in the description list of the podcast and making your first transaction. So if you want to get your $20 in cash back, the referral link is in the description below the video. Um, one comment in, in relation to your 2019 an analogy, I like it by the way, since you're right, that bank reserves did not predict what happened in the S&P 500, to say the least, no. in 2019. But we knew the end date. 
That's and true. you knew the extent of the balance sheet drawdown. Currently, we don't. No. That's, a, that's a game changer in my view um, because it kind of resembles what you described on the terminal rate last year. We didn't know the end, end game for the terminal rate. We kept um, sort of rephrasing our theories around what could be the terminal rate. And now we could at some point during the spring end up discussing what's the terminal value of the balance sheet. Could it end up being longer or something like that? Uh, so I wouldn't rule out that the balance sheet actually could play a factor in a weaker equity markets towards um, late spring this year. Also, um, it's kind of amusing uh, to see how everyone then suddenly expects Bank of England and the ECB to just follow in the footsteps of Powell. And well, frankly, so at least Bank of England clearly did. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, that was literally a pause, right? Um, while the ECB, I'm not so sure. I mean, um, watching Christine Lagarde on press conferences is like watching a traffic accident in slow motion every time. And it was one of the worst press conferences uh, in her reign, during her reign, since everything was 100% scripted. Um, she didn't dare to say one single word that was not put in a manuscript in front of her. Uh, I, re I remember Powell doing the same in, in some of his first conferences, but he's become much better at yeah, yeah. sort of adapting to the questions. Uh, but I, I actually think the ECB thought that this would be a hawkish message. <laughs> No um, way. Yeah, no. I, I think so. Before we jump into the analysis of the ECB, I have two comments to make, Andreas. The first is, people are used to listen to my Italian accent, but I mean, hearing Lagarde saying stuff like, uh, with the QE reinvestment, uh, we are going to prioritize the decarbonization of... <laughs> what the fuck? Like, dude, you are showing up there on stand in a crucial meeting for the Eurozone when it comes to setting monetary policy, and you literally spend 10 minutes elaborating in a non-precise way how you're going to reinvest your principal maturing into some sort of very arbitrary rules linked to something that doesn't have to do with monetary policy. So I found that interesting, to say the least, let's say. I'm glad that I still have this one. <laughs> Very good. He's back. The team for a hat. In 2019, I wrote an article when I was global chief strategist at Nordea Bank called Get Ready for Climate QE. And I remember at the time that I was called a tinfoil hat by everyone. Here it is. It's not QE per se, but it's at least climate reinvestment. And every and I, time you say something with this tinfoil hat on top of your head, it always falls exactly at the right time. I mean, I swear, guys, it's not scripted. It's really, it happens. The second announcement I have before we, we go ahead with the analysis of the ECB is that roughly, you know, we are at minute 14 now. So people would expect we call in a guest. But actually, because you guys have been reaching out to us bilaterally, two bazillion times telling us that you appreciate when Andreas and I insult each other, banter on macro, talk the two of us. We thought, you know what, why don't we just do it like this more often? Andreas, what do you say? Yeah. I agree. Um, I also like it when, um, when we have these discussions on, on global macro. And um, 
I love the chemistry between us. Uh, so why not just continue Ooh, with that? It's a bromance. <laughs> so to, in order to make the bromance really work, uh, we need to change some food habits though, mate. We really need to talk about that. Yeah. Your food habits, I mean, not <laughs> mine are perfect. I'm Italian. Come on, give me a break. Um, no, but apart from that, shall we talk about the ECB a bit more? You know, yeah. we have um, we have to entertain people here with macro blubbering, which we are experts in. Um, so ECB, I told you my opinion on the Fed. So why don't you tell me your opinion on the ECB first, so I can tell you you're wrong. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here's the short summary: mm. fifty basis points this week. 50 basis points in March. At least it would be very tricky for them not to deliver 50 basis points in March since they directly wrote it. After the 50 basis points in March, it could be a pause. Um, since they say the exact same thing as the Fed does uh, in the way that uh, they, they phrase this, um, everything will be data dependent after March. Um, they will have to uh, look at the extent of hikes given the lags from the hikes already delivered. Um, it was like a copy paste of uh, the Powell setup. Um, and that leads me to say, uh, and now I should probably wear my tinfoil hat again, but it almost seems as if this was kind of a global coordinated message from the big three central banks this week, something that they agreed upon in the corridors in Davos two weeks ago at the World Economic Forum. And now I sound very tinfoil hatty, but they obviously met there. Um, and I think give, give, give them, yeah. why do you say you signed very, very tinfoil hat? I clearly remember in 2016, when we had the Chinese deleveraging episode, and you remember it's going to be a Chinese hard landing, and mm. they were depegging the renminbi and free floating the renminbi and all that stuff, right? Uh, it was quite bad for the global economy at the beginning of 2016. And um, the central banks were doing a, a good old FX war. So they were trying to depreciate their currency, trying to import some inflation via the FX channel, right? So everybody was cutting rates, doing QE all at the same time. And I remember there was a G7 or a G20, which was the marking point for them to basically jointly announce and decide that they're going to stop doing that because there is no winner in an FX war at the end of the day. So this time could actually be quite a similar setup. It's not a, co a coincidence, I think, that Bank of England, ECB, and the Fed effectively go on and say basically the same thing, mm. right? Yeah. Uh, and you could argue that sort of an interest rate hiking competition was ongoing, yeah. um, especially towards uh, the latter fall last year it was very evident that Bank of England and the ECB had to do something to save their currencies, right? Um, they, they were forced into accelerating their hiking cycles as a consequence of that, because otherwise inflation would have spiraled completely out of control. Yeah. So I, um, I think you might be right on the theory, but when I look at the ECB, I mean, Lagarde, it was December when Lagarde showed up in front of the camera, didn't read a script at all. Mm and went out and said stuff like uh, terminal rate needs to be 4% minimum because mm. core inflation is going to be over 5 by our own forecast, maybe 4.5% by the end of 2023. So you mm. guys need to behave and reprice terminal rate at least to the same levels. That was December. Then two weeks ago, she shows up to the wire and says, I suggest traders revise their... Uh, pricing or their positions actually she mm. said when it comes to short-term interest rates 
what the fuck? That's like heavy. That's like basically saying to people, you know, we are pushing terminal rates at 4%, please behave or otherwise we'll stop you out anyway with actions. And two weeks later, she goes like, yeah, you know, it's a 50 basis point and then another 50 basis point. And then we are data dependent, which basically means guys, you know, three and a half percent, that's the only thing you need to price in. The rest, go ahead. I mean, this is inconsistent and it leads to massive volatility in the bond market. You have today, I think, one of the biggest daily swings in the bonds ever recorded. And under our tenure, Andreas, we can never backtest it because we, can, we cannot go back in time and have an alternative universe when there is another central banker heading the ECB. But under our tenure, I think bond markets in Europe have seen one of the biggest cluster of volatile days ever. Uh, it's incredible. So remember how Mario Draghi was able to announce a bizarrely sized QE package without moving the Bund. Yeah. He, he was literally able to do so. He, he moved the Bund like two, three basis points in such a meeting, uh, while Lagarde is able to move the Bund 20 basis points in either direction by just yeah. stating what we had expected. <laughs> Pretty much. And then on... Um... On QT, that's the other interesting thing. There is no color whatsoever. So we do 15 billion the first three months between March and June. Only and for then, the APP, by the way. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then meh, we'll see. We're data dependent. I mean, geez, not even on the balance sheet we have any guidance. I mean, it's a bit... I think the market does what it does, Andres, in this case. It's basically, it says, well, if you guys don't want to tell me what the forward guidance is, not even remotely, and you say you're data dependent, then I'll tell you what the data will do. The data will suck, especially when it comes to inflation. <laughs> it will come down very rapidly, and that's at least what they're pricing in. Yeah. So if you don't mind, I'm going to price everything else accordingly. Uh, BTPs, boons, uh, spreads, equities, anything. Like, it's a soft landing. This episode is brought to you by Wisdom Tree. Wisdom Tree is a global ETF and ETP sponsor and asset manager founded in 2006 and with a track record of innovation and creating better ways to invest. Today, Wisdom Tree offers a broad range of differentiated ETFs and ETPs across equities, thematics, commodities, fixed income currencies, short and leveraged, and cryptocurrencies with over 80 billion in assets under management. For more information about Wisdom Tree, please visit wisdomtree.eu. So let's talk about some um, positioning or trade ideas here, Andreas. What do you say? Well, um, thankfully, I've been leaning long equities into the year, uh, continue to do so. Uh, I also find value in the long euro trade versus the US dollar still. Uh, I ultimately find good value in the euro since spread compressions in the eurozone typically leads to another boost for the euro and when you see ptps behave like they've done uh, through the uh, latter end of this week well that's certainly a positive for the euro uh, i know it's getting slightly consensus in that trade uh, but on the other hand the fed is likely to pause ahead of the ecb so i don't really see any like relative central bank pricing um, uh, getting uh, ahead of this trade so those are two things to mention. Um, if we look across the board uh, in equity space, Europe is still much cheaper than the US. Uh, I think it's very safe to say. Uh, I know that some of these extremely interest rate sensitive sectors in the US can rally on the back of such a message from central banks. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, I prefer to play it a little bit more defensively via European stocks. Um, and 
Otherwise, uh, I love the industrial metal space still. Uh, China is open for business. We've seen the first signs of it in German PMIs. We've seen it in the IFO index. And um, that leads me to the fine trade. I have a lot of trades right now. <laughs> um, what you should focus on right now are the trades that have been absolutely slaughtered last year and that no one has noticed yet in this kind of environment. Uh, one trade could be to go long palladium. Um, palladium is used in the automotive industry. The German automotive industry is rebounding. If you look at industrial production in Germany, it will rebound as a consequence of the sentiment improvement that we've seen in the IFO expectations. Um, so I love long palladium also given that it is one of the most hated commodities out there. <laughs> yeah, so I think the strategy is correct. I like it because you have generally two ways to try and generate alpha. You either get the direction of travel right in magnitude or the direction itself before the macro community does, or you find stuff that is inconsistently priced within that regime that is already unfolding. So you basically find laggards basically, or correlations breaking or something that doesn't fit that particularly already prevailing macro regime. And that's what you're trying to do now. Because guys, I mean, at the end of the day, if you want to put up a soft landing trade by now, I mean, soft landing trades are by definition carry trades. So you need to short volatility, buy credit, compress equity risk premium. This is soft landing. It's basically you squeeze out any, any risk premium metric. You have credit, vol, by selling it and buying equities. Eh, you might want to say that you might be a little bit too late to the party if that's your plan. It can still work if the data validates soft lending. I mean, if data validates soft lending, Andreas, then ultimately equity markets are going to close the year 15% up from today. No problem because there is, you know, there is no reason why it shouldn't. Earnings are not going to collapse. Central banks are going to follow the forwards. They're going to cut rates. Um, you know, that's great. Um, but the risk reward in that part might not be the best at this point, I would say. What's good, I think, and you have been pointing people to that, and I agree, is looking into stuff that hasn't reprised as it should um, following some of the forces that are dominating. So the Chinese reopening is one. And uh, there is one problem with that, Andreas. Barron's uh, has put China reopening on the front page of the newspaper. That's, yeah, a, red okay. flag. That's a red flag. <laughs> no, I'm joking, I'm joking. But my good friend Ben Hunt, uh, Epsilon Theory, uh, screens narratives um, quantitatively. Does mm. a very good job with that. And he always says, you know, when the trade moves from page three to page one of the newspaper, eh, you want to be a bit careful with uh, owning the trade. The reality is that Barnes is the only newspaper that's put China reopening in the front page. So you're still in time probably to play that. In particular, playing spillovers to that yeah. trade that haven't been fully priced in yet. Because guys, macro is gigantic. There are so many asset classes with so many betas and correlations that sometimes you'll find some of this stuff still yeah. hanging around. And uh, palladium, fuck, I didn't think about that. You see, that's good. That could be an interesting one. For instance, there are many others. I look, you can look geographically at what, what are the economies with the highest beta to China. You'll be surprised if you look into that, like, Chile. What's, yes, for instance. Yeah. So, so you have copper, for instance, that is has rallied. At the beginning of the year, that's one of the trades that made the most money for the macro compass, being long industrial metals, copper and, and co. 
be not because we are geniuses, but because we quantitatively screen for this kind of beta laggards or breaking correlations. So China was rallying. Everybody was talking about the potential for a Chinese reopening. And copper, zinc, aluminum were like, nah, nah, mm. nah. We, what, what do you mean? I mean, if China reopens, obviously, you need to follow up in industrial metals. And now palladium, I haven't looked into it, but it might be an interesting one. Because European banks, car manufacturers, these cyclicals in Europe are actually rebounding pretty rapidly. Yes. Very rapidly on a volatility-adjusted basis. So what do you do is, what's correlated to that? I mean, what do car makers need? I think that's a, that's a good point. Mm. And uh, talking about cyclicals, um, one of the ways I try to measure relative equity, equity value across sectors is to look at forward pricing of earnings relative to realized earnings. Uh, and then judge that versus the history of the time series of that spread. And if you look at cyclicals as a group, um, they're actually priced to drop in earnings relative to the most recent set of realized earnings as the only group. Uh, so should we get a soft landing? Oh, boy. <laughs> also in option land, I was looking at um, a bit more quantitatively into options per sector. And... Um, one of the things you notice, and um, the piece is going to get out to client at the end of this week, but one of the things you notice, Andreas, is that the stuff that last year was hammered the most, uh, home builders, consumer discretionary, mm. anything that smells like, oh my God, in a recession it gets hammered, the skew is freaking expensive and implied vols on the downside, still ridiculously expensive from a history perspective. Earnings are obviously amongst the most depressed when it comes to expectations. So really, like across the board, soft lending is priced pretty much as a mature base case by now. But still, there are nuances across asset classes where you can still find mispricing either for the current prevailing regime or for tail risks that are underappreciated. So that's what you should be on a lookout for, I think. Yeah. So, Elf, in terms of actual implementation of some of these traits. Mm. Let me just mention that the palladium trade is actually um, possible to find as an ETF trade as well. Uh, the Ooh. PHPD, and I'm reading out aloud here, um, Wisdom Tree EU um, is a long palladium whoa, 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 ETF. Wait, wait. PHPD, yeah. palladium ETF in Europe. That's yes. quite a thing. Okay. It, it's probably not that big an ETF, but um, hey, still hey, it's hey. tradable. If you want to do it in futures, so you have to put up your, your, your whole house as a margin probably to do that. So <laughs> give me a break, Andreas. I think our friends at Wisdom Tree do an excellent job, especially with commodities ETF, really. And if, if you want something even more bizarre than Kathy Wood's fund, then the WTAI um, which is an artificial intelligence ETF by Wisdom Tree is an interesting one. It only invests in companies related to the artificial intelligence industry. And I'm not even sure I understand it, but it's performing like crazy right now. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Steno has morphed into um, Kathy Wood. Um, he's pumping artificial intelligence right now. No, just kidding. But... Um, I'm not aware of the artificial intelligence ETF, but one thing to be said is really these Wisdom Tree guys have set up quite a lot of interesting products. It, they have, yeah. in, in ETF space. But okay, so the Palladium is there, PHPD, you said, right? Yes. That's the ETF. Um, and said that, Andreas, um, I mean, guys, look, 
it's uh, always a pleasure to spend time with my buddy Andreas, um, but it's 9.35 p.m. in Europe, so why don't we call it quits, Andreas, yeah. what do you say? Yeah, I agree. Um, even though it's fun talking to you, I also like sleeping. <laughs> you do? Oh, incredible. You also have a kid, which is quite yeah. a second job, I understand. So, by, by the way, we got a lot of feedback last week um, asking us, who the fuck are playing drums behind you every time you record a podcast? And the answer is my son. <laughs> Your son is playing drums. Okay, fair enough, I think. Yeah. Uh, But today he's asleep. That's why we record this late. <laughs> there you go. All right, mate. Um, if people want to find us, I am at themacrocompass.com and my buddy Andreas. I'm at stenoresearch.com. You can find us on Twitter, obviously, as well. There you go. See you guys next week. <laughs> <laughs>